You are the master of your reality. This is even more true in relation to the government. Democracy doesn't just happen. It takes participation. Governments need participation and feedback from their citizens. Join Rob Hutchinson for Dear Parliament, where you get to understand the issues and engage directly with government. Dear Parliament is every Wednesday at midday, only on 101.9 High FM. Well, good afternoon and welcome to yet another edition of Dear Parliament. And of course, this is the show in which I do my best to bring Parliament closer to you. And I do so whether you want it closer or not. But seriously, if you're new to the show, welcome. And do feel free to uh, browse Spotify or KaiFM's website at www.kaiFM.com for previous episodes of this show and others. There are many to choose from. Also, should you want to participate or comment during the show, why not send us an SMS to 34519 or an email to on air at And really, don't be shy. Make your voice heard. We'll listen and engage you on, on the show. And talking about voices, why is it that social media has become the loudest yet most inaudible means of communication in our modern society? You know, I often have this crazy thought that humans are certainly an odd bunch when it quite does come to communication and I suspect that we lost the ability to communicate when we gained the power of speech I know that might sound a bit weird but but hear me out when we when we developed speech we moved away from nonverbal communication which uh, in itself presented a host of problems. Nonverbal communication is vitally important to all, all beings, species, and especially humans. Uh, the most obvious of those problems is we forgot how to judge people by their actions, and instead we now focus on their words. And, well, perhaps <laughs> this was the idea, or where the idea of politics and politicians was was perhaps born and perhaps that is what is wrong with our modern society in total and it's compounded by social media which completely removes the subtle yet highly revealing nuances that that you pick up in tone of voice in body language and therefore genuine sincerity it is rather sad times indeed and here, if I was browsing through Twitter, which actually sparked this thought, and that uh, there are some news headlines, such as the Hawks investigating 1.5 trillion in, in dodgy deals, and other de- depressing, depressing headlines, and so many, so many of us just read headlines and read no further, and then from a few words in a headline, we actually determine what is going on in society. We make judgments on others and. And situations and hardly for ourselves on, on those matters. I mean, that 1.5 trillion in, in dodgy deals was astounding. And at first glance, I thought, whoa, what is going on here? Is this all government, government related or is it something more sincere? But no, it actually turns out that the Hawks are probing at these 22,477 cases with a combined monetary value of about 1.5 trillion. This is an incredible amount. Apparently, 
there are more than 500,000 charges and the cases involve approximately 23,500 suspects. This is it's absolute madness, but at least they are going through the cases, getting to them and hopefully prosecuting people in the near future. They have actually uh, gone through quite a few cases, but still there's a lot to cover here. And the cases go through everything from money laundering to uh, corruption to uh, petty crime to uh, drug and human trafficking and commercial crime and organized crime and cyber crime and many others, just to name to name a few. They even go so far as to include incitement to commit a crime. So in this value of $1.5 trillion is not just the actual monetary value, but potential monetary value as well. Not quite sure how they come to the, the value of the potential, potential losses. And there's many other headlines as well. An interesting one that I saw uh, this morning again was the issue of grants. Now, recently government did increase, in fact it was on the 1st of August, uh, government increased the social relief of distress grant uh, for up from 350 to 624 rand per month. However, uh, what they've put in here is that uh, the grants, if you want to claim from the grants, you have to first prove that you need the money. And I'd love to see someone try to prove that anyone doesn't need an extra bit of, a bit of money every month. And the conditions also have been uh, other conditions have been added on. They've got to be looking for uh, employment or education opportunities. And SASA will reevaluate this once every three three months. But good luck to that. I, I still think everybody needs an extra bit of, bit of help, especially in today's uh, struggling economy in South Africa. And lo and behold, there's another shutdown. In South Africa, way, yeah, that's really going to do our economy great and job opportunities will certainly spark from that. I struggle to understand why a planned national shutdown and will, will apply, but, or how, how it will benefit South Africans in general, but there, there seems to be other, other reasoning out, out there. But however, government has uh, imposed a no work, no pay principle. And they've warned all workers that this will definitely apply and will be strictly strictly controlled. No pay leave, paid leave will be granted unless there are exceptional circumstances. I don't know what those will be either, but we'll have to wait and see. And today what we're going to do is another episode of a, a thing we've started in, in just recently, a little segment in the Dear Parliament show. And it's simply done because... As I mentioned, hardly any of us read beyond the headlines. So what we'll bring you is the news behind the headlines. And I'll be joined uh, in a moment by Gideon Jube. He's the CEO of Dear South Africa, the public participation organization. And we'll be going through some of the latest headlines issued by Parliament themselves on various bills and through the media in related related incidents, obviously relating to governance and politics. And won't that be fun? 
But yes, so stay tuned because that is coming up in a few moments and don't go anywhere because it promises to be quite exciting. And again, if you want to send us a question, please do so on 34519 or send an email to onair at chaifm. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson because democracy doesn't just happen. And welcome back to Dear Parliament, the show in which we are about to bring you the news behind the headlines. And joining me today is Gideon Chaper, CEO of Dear South Africa. Gideon, I trust you're well. I am doing great, Rob. And uh, just apologies to you and your listeners for, for the terrible audio quality. I am on the move, so uh, this is on my phone. And not from my studio for a change, but great to be here and a lot of interesting things happening so far this week. Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just you that's on the move. I think everything out there is on, on the move today and with a lot of noise too. There seems to be a national shutdown going, going on. There's a whole lot of new bills in parliament and a lot of news that is making, making the headlines. Um, I think one that, that I'd like to start off with is, is possibly the, the national shutdown. Uh, I can hear that you're out, out in the public. Has it, has it affected you at all? Have you noticed anything? Not at all. So uh, I was at Cape Town International Airport this morning, actually having a coffee with Ian Cameron, of all people. He sends us regards, <laughs> by the way. And um, N2 was free-flowing. Um, I made sure to check before I left home and, and subsequently check because Cape Town has this wonderful thing called the Cape Town I think it's the freeway management system, FMS. They have a Twitter account where they live update issues up and down the entire freeway system in the metro. And all roads were clear. Um, the only blockages that they, they were, were were the usual traffic-related stuff. So nothing, not much of a national shutdown here. And from what I saw in the news, not much of a national shutdown elsewhere either. There have been some sporadic protests and stuff like that, but I think bear in mind, we have about 10 violent protests a day in SA statistically. So we, I don't think we've seen a marked embrace of whatever this, this, this is. I don't recall who called for it, Rob. Who is, mm. who is behind the whole, you know, stay, stay away from work, uh, business. I, it was one of the unions and I think the EFF were also involved. Yeah, absolutely. It was was one of the unions, and no doubt the EFF. Although information is pretty pretty scant on that, I think uh, it's all it's becoming too all too common. I think in South Africa, where people just think, "Oh, natural shutdown. We can stay at home. It's a great great excuse not to go to work," and and so on. But yeah, does is it effective? Does it actually work? What does it actually do? We have a massive unemployment problem in South Africa and many people looking for jobs and many people have actually given up looking for jobs. If you look at, if you look at the statistics just released by, by the, by government, it actually shows that, um, the unemployment rate has gone down slightly, but it's, it's totally, it's totally inaccurate to present it that way because what has actually happened, it's the way that they report Unemployment. Government, yeah. government has taken note of people who have given up looking for jobs and suddenly they're not on the unemployment list because yeah. they're not actively looking. So it's really misleading. In fact, it's actually gone up. Unemployment has actually gone up. So, yeah, it's gone up by about 132,000. Uh, yeah. Which is, which is quite, 
a significant number. And I, I think what what is to be noted here is this is precisely why we have two definitions of unemployment. We have the strict definition, which is someone I think that's been out of work for the past, uh, I think it's the past three months. And then there's the expanded definition of unemployment, which includes those that have given up finding work altogether. Because now you get surveyed, okay, are you unemployed? Have you been you know, unsuccessful at finding a job in the, X, the past X amount of weeks? And if participants go, no, they haven't looked for a job, they, in some instances, aren't counted as that. Because this person doesn't have a job, they need one, they would like one, but they've completely given up and therefore haven't participated as such in attempting to obtain it. Bizarrely, if, if I understand this correctly, they're, they're not counted <laughs> They're not counted as being unemployed, which creates a, a completely false and inaccurate picture of of the scale of the problem. Absolutely, but doesn't isn't that what government generally does? Is when things aren't going in their favour, when statistics prove or reveal government inadequacies, government tends to change the definitions of of these uh, uh, circumstances exactly like that. Well, look, these definitions have, have existed for a while, but I think what, what happens here is you massage the numbers by changing the methodology of how you count them. And, uh, and that's a, a problem that we, that's not uniquely South African. I mean, um, I, I've mm-hmm. seen uh, a tweet from Peter Hitchens this morning where he says, you know, the UK crime rates are far worse than they're reported, but and by his estimate are worse than they were in the mid-1990s when they were actually sort of at a peak. And the reason why they appear to be as low and wonderful as they are is it's being underreported and, and captured incorrectly or differently because there's a – unfortunately, there's, there's a great amount of political capital in doing so in the fact that you, your administration appears far more competent than it really is. I mean, it's the same reason why, you know, apart from Beke Tsele going on his usual tirades against alcohol and guns and violent men, he couldn't help but say, oh, but rape's gone down slightly. He goes, y- you know, <laughs> when, when, when you sit, and I'm laughing not because I find it funny, but because of the sheer ridiculousness of the situation. When you sit in a country that is colloquially referred to as the rape capital of the world, difficulties in measuring this cross-country notwithstanding. I think there's there's a, a visceral point to be made in that, that title anyway. When you sit in a country where we have a sexual violence problem at, at this horrific scale, to actually even mention, well, it's slightly less now, you know, in this quarter compared to the same quarter last year. Therefore, that's, that's, that's something worth mentioning in a win. I mean, I would, I would not know where to, which preface to put my head into if my immediate superior said something like that. Well, absolutely. And it's, it's not a, as you say, it's not an uncommon thing for, for governments to do this. A great example in South Africa is the metric pass rate. <laughs> if, 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 you know, because all you have to do is low, lower the, the, the requirements for passing down, down to 30% and suddenly more people are, are passing the trick. It doesn't mean the situation has improved. In fact, it's worsened because you've just lowered the standards. It, it's a downward spiral that we need to stop stop doing. It really we need to give accurate measurements, not modify them to suit political needs or or objectives or create false impressions. It's really time that we we demanded this from government. No, demand competence, demand 
accountability, demand transparency, all these sorts of things. And it's, it's the same as, you know, you, you could make your pass rate 90%, but if your curriculum is pathetic in its content and, uh, you know, uh, basically the fast food junk version of education, then if, you know, 100% of your pupils succeed in getting 90% because the curriculum is that easy, then you're also not raising your standards, even though you, you, you are creating the impression that you are. And I think that's also another thing people need to guard against, the fact that you don't want to get blindsided by a government sleight of hand pertaining to how they treat standards. Uh, standards can be very fluid in many ways. It's the same way that, you know, uh, last week, end of last week, it's not quite this week's story, that horrific story about how many police officers aren't competent to carry firearms, even though that it's a prerequisite of their duty. What people forget is that the SAPS used to do a qualification shoot or their version of it every single year. That was bumped up to every two years and, and now it's been changed to every five years because they don't have the budget. They don't have the ammunition supply to do it. But they're happy to say, you know what, we're going we're gonna lower it because uh, we would rather lower the standard than to address the supply chain issues that, that have resulted in us not meeting it. So we're, we're happy to just send incompetent, for want of a better term, police officers out to interact with the public rather than, than train them. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a big problem. And part of this problem is also because civil society is equally guilty of accepting it. We, we, we're not, I think, being hardcore enough about rejecting this this, ten, this trend. Mm. Well, well, I, I think we we have forgotten how to ask the questions. We we just take everything at face value. I was talking in the intro about how we listen to to words instead of actually measuring actions, and that's become the norm the norm of today, especially through social media, where we no longer have the opportunity to see people's actions. We just take for granted what is presented to us in in word format, which is really a, a dangerous thing. But I think more important is that we as a society need to be asking the proper questions. We need to somehow reignite the critical thinking that has yes. sadly disappeared in, in society. Well, that's exactly it. And um, I think what, what you're referring to here is, is, is image crafting. Yeah. The sense that you are representing yourself or what you're doing in a completely inaccurate way because there's a symmetry of information. The public you're presenting this image to doesn't actually know what you know. And you know that they don't know what you know, so you can manipulate this image of or, or, or the situ of you or the situation, whatever, to such a degree that you can – and we're also a fast food information culture now in the sense of you scroll timelines on social media, you read headlines, you don't engage with the actual – material anymore what you say about critical thinking is 100% on point Rob I think uh, and this is something parents might agree or disagree with me with but there's a big focus in our education system about teaching kids to study things out of books and accept these things as fact and memorize them and regurgitate them in the system of standardized testing because if they don't do that then they fail but are we teaching kids to think critically? Are we teaching them to engage with the material as presented and go, do you agree with this? Does this make actual sense to you? What intelligent questions would you ask about this? The, the, the one thing I will always remember of my grandfather before he passed away is as a small child, I, I, I read a book that I can't even remember what the book was about, and it's not relevant. 
But I said to him, wow, this, this seems really interesting. I didn't know this was true. And he took one look at it and he read through it. And he said, well, you, you, you think it's unbelievable because it's rubbish. And I said to him with a na- you know, naivety of a child, I said, but how can it be rubbish, Grandpa? Because it's in a book. You know, to me, my mind couldn't fathom at the time that how can a falsehood be published? You know, like why would, how could it end up in a book format? And his answer to him was straightforward. He's like, well, you can't believe everything you read in books, my boy. And that was a whole new sort of world to me as an eight year old kid. So I think something similar to that needs to maybe take hold at a national level here. I agree. how to facilitate that, Rob? I don't have that, that, those answers. Maybe you do. Maybe our listeners do. Maybe our listeners do. Yeah, that, that'd be wonderful. If you have any suggestions, send them through to us on three four five one nine. That will be absolutely wonderful. But you're right, Gideon. It is. It is a, the lack of critical thinking, and it is definitely brought about by by our education. We should be teaching critical thinking skills at school, but real critical thinking skills, where you question. Authority, you question what is what is said, and you formulate your own opinion from the facts that are presented to you. And there's no doubt that humans learn through experience rather than being told what to do. Uh, that's how my kids, my kids have, have have grown up as well. You can, and you'll get there with with yours as well. When when you when you tell a kid not to touch, don't touch that, don't touch that, that thing. All you're actually telling the kid is. Touch it, touch it, because now the kid has thought, ooh, then your brain has to process the negative before, or the positive before it processes the negative. So all that kid is hearing is touch this, touch this. And now they just, the curiosity, the natural curiosity as children has now been sparked. And what they're going to do? They will touch it. Only touch it once though. They won't touch it again because it is hot. So <laughs> no matter what you do, I, I remember when, when, when I was a kid and, yeah, this is quite a, quite a funny story. Um, we we had a whole lot of fire extinguishers in 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 the garage for some project that that we were doing, and on on the fire extinguishers was a big red button that said push. And <laughs> <laughs> I could see where this is going. <laughs> and all it said to me was, "Oh, okay, push." So I pushed them all. It must have been about twenty fire extinguishers, <laughs> and of course, a big cloud of carbon dioxide and smoke. And well, it was was wonderful. But the, the the point there is that I was confronted by by my parent at the time, and and my mom said to me, "Well, why did you push it?" And, and I said, "Because it said I must push it." So I think that's perhaps the point where, where I started to question everything that I read, <laughs> including, including when I was a teenager, including uh, uh, traffic, traffic signs and the speed limits. No, don't believe everything you read at all. It's just a suggestion. Yeah. And, and understand context because a lot of stuff is wholly context dependent. <laughs> because if you don't push that red button when you're supposed to, then you're also going to be in a lot of trouble. Exactly. Um, exactly. So, so that kind of brings us to, to, to another headline, Rob, that, that if you don't mind me jumping mm. in with it, you saw the story about Trane Power, the city of Trane yes. and, and, and Eskom basically trying to nail them, I think for like 1.6 billion rand. And, when I was at at I think about two or three Saturdays ago, I had the the privilege of speaking to one of the the um, people on the Trani City Council and said, "Look, 
just what's the story exactly with ASCOM? Because it was the ramblings were already there, and you said, well, let me explain to you how it works. This is what they want, and they, uh, you know, they want this amount of money out of us, but we haven't even been able to generate a fraction of it through collections. And I thought, you know, but this is quite a cheeky way of sabotaging a coalition government, because if you're in national government, so you are the ANC, you have deployed your cadres as our current president was the head of that cater deployment process to strategic positions in um, uh, parastatals like ESCOM, you are then capable of going in a way after your political enemies and coalition governments that have, have, have taken a metro away from you by just getting them to make these types of demands and essentially threaten to bankrupt that entire metro or make it unworkable. And my question is, why is ESCOM even collecting from municipalities? Why aren't they directly collecting from their user base? Why is that the municipality's responsibility to act as the middleman when ESCOM is the person who's doing the cutting off or the supplying? It makes no sense to me. No, you're right. It definitely doesn't. But, yeah, the the problem here is that, um, you know, metros and municipalities are desperate for, for money. So what they actually do is they resell ESCOM's product, which is electricity, and then add, add a profit on or a markup onto that, which is allowed for in in the in the legislation and in, in nurses nurses grants. Um, but you you are correct. There's a massive problem where municipalities aren't fulfilling uh, ESCOM's needs, aren't paying the owed amounts, and that creates a problem not for the municipality. But for the end user at the, at the end of the day. Exactly. And it's a big, massive problem because you can be paying your bills every month on time and even be in credit, but you'll still get cut off when the municipality gets cut off. And exactly. it's quite, yeah, it's quite strange that, uh, Swani actually went on a big drive, not, not a, only a few weeks ago, maybe a month and a half ago to collect, um, outstanding bills from from business, local businesses and government institutions, yet here is ESCOM wanting to cut off Twani. Really doesn't make any sense at all. No, no, it doesn't. And it, it, this feels to me a little bit like, you know, this is the, the, the road to hell is occasionally paved with good intentions. And in this case, the road to hell being, you know what, we'll give municipalities a, a, a bit of a profit motive here. But, of course, you know, uh, an unscrupulous municipality will abuse that profit motive as we've seen happen and then leave a new metro <laughs> council with um, a, a big backlog and a massive problem that they that they then won't be able to th- fix through collections so exactly. um, it is a, a baked in failure uh, in the words of Martin von Staden and yeah, you know, mm. I don't know what your thoughts are but that looks like a, a big headache for the no, Tron the, the Tron municipality and the council I mean it's certainly going to be a big headache, which perhaps we should talk to, talk about uh, after we've paid a few bills here. <laughs> and we shall hold on there. We shall be back with some really interesting discussions around Swami matters and others in a few minutes. Be right back. You are listening to Dear Parliament with Rob Hutchinson, because democracy doesn't just happen. And indeed, democracy doesn't just happen. It certainly takes a considerable amount of effort from you, from us, and from our politicians. Yeah, Gideon, welcome back. And 
I've just actually during the break I read through the official notice from the city of Swanee on on their outstanding outstanding payments and apparently it's only in four days in arrears. Look at it is one point six billion Rand that they that they are outstanding, but only four days in arrears? Why? That's a big question that you did by saying what what is this really about? Well, this is the thing, and uh, I think when when we look at at the, the present relationship between the various parties in that in that metro council, and we're talking here about uh, you know, and I'm not picking a side here between DA and Action uh, SA and uh, the Freedom Front Plus and all the other players, but uh, the mayor having made a suggestion regarding addressing the electricity problem through a potential sort of open sort of tender process. It's fine that he got shot down. I mean, it, we, we don't need coalition partners to necessarily agree on everything. But the entire issue has been sort of turned on its head and warped around into a, a type of witch hunt almost. And when you start looking at the high degree of hostility present in these councils, I mean, we saw we saw there were, was an eruption of violence in the city of Joburg one, I think a few weeks ago, literally one or two weeks ago, where I, I believe a, a woman councillor was assaulted by an EFF member. Um, there's, there's been similar issues in Ikaruleni. Everywhere where there's, where there's coalitions. Now, I can understand there, there's frictions in these types of relationships by the very nature of people who don't like each other very much are kind of forced to work together and compromise on things. The, the level of sabotage that works against the best interests of the residents and of the ratepayers and of mm. the people living in those cities and in those metros is actually quite shameful that, you know, you vote for people to represent your interests and instead what you get is you have, have front, you buy front seats to a ring where they duke it out along political lines and you just have to look at this mess and go, is this the, is this the best we have to offer? In the political class in this country, because I hope not. Yeah, I, I hope not as well. But it, it does, it does seem to be a, a a play for power in in between all the political parties, which really brings concerns as to around uh, a coalition government and if that will actually work in South Africa. I have my doubts to be to be dead honest. Mm. I know, the likes of uh, Helen Helen Ziller has been talking about. Sorry. Helen Zill has been talking about. <laughs> I always get that wrong, but anyway, <laughs> it might be deliberate. But anyway, <laughs> the, yeah, Helen Zill recently was talking about a coalition with uh, with anyone who really wants to toe the line and better South Africa, including the ANC. And I, I personally don't think that we are mature enough as a democracy to to be able to do that. I really don't see it happening. And the metros and the municipalities are a great example for, for that. We have a long way to go for cooperation. We have a long way to go when understanding that politics is completely separate to governance. And that is what these, these parties should be doing in, at, at a municipal level, focusing on governance. And in governance, we all have the same objective. It's to provide services to to the constituents. It's as simple, simple as that. Politics plays no part in it, but yet we have ideology and politics influencing all these decisions. It's a sad state of affairs, man. 
No, it's exactly that. And I think, uh, Rob, what, what, what is at least a positive point to this, and, and people may very well disagree with me here, is if you have a gridlocked parliament, because the coalition isn't overcoming its internal frictions in order to actually govern and pass policy, at least you won't be passing any bad policy for that time. You, that would be frozen completely. Bad ideas won't gain enough traction to pass. There will be, in essence, a, a big pause on on them, which may not be what we want. We want a reversal of bad ideas and an implementation of good ones. But if a coalition government isn't going to be mature enough to bring us good ideas and at least be immature enough to freeze it up and not bring us any further bad policy decisions, mm. that gives civil society an opportunity to step up to the plate and say, you know what, it's fine. We understand the government is gridlocked. We are going to, within the, the constraints of the law which is and the constitution, which is the most important one, which is quite easy to do. We're going to address and solve these problems on our own steam going forward from here. And we're going to implement things and you won't be able to stop, stop us because you won't be able to pass policy to stop us. So you create a parallel social organ or, or infrastructure as such to address specific problems and that originates from within society itself. And I think we've already seen major successes in, in this regard, forthcoming from all sort of uh, spheres of, of our of our republic, and that fills me with a lot of optimism that people are willing to become involved, that they are willing to directly uh, get their hands, you know, dirty in, in a good way, and, and and get sweaty and solve solve problems. Um, even uh, you know, especially when government is demonstrating either unwilling or, or in, incapable of doing so. Correct. I couldn't agree with you more there on that one. And it's exactly, exactly. We need to be more vocal uh, to remind our public servants, not our leaders, because they're not our leaders, they are public servants. We need to remind them that they need to focus on our needs, our wants, and, and us, rather than themselves. And politics plays no part in that. If there's a service delivery problem in, in an area, well then, how are you as a government going to solve that, that problem? Leave the politics out of it. And I think the more vocal we are as people from all walks of life, from any, any political background, no matter what color t-shirt we might wear in, in as a, as a political rally, we all have the same, same want and desire. And that is a better governance, a better governance structure. So, I think you're absolutely right, Gideon, is that we do need to remind uh, ourselves and our leaders that they are not leaders. They are servants here to fulfill our needs in a true democracy. And if it comes from all all sides, from all colors of T-shirts, then it's even even more powerful. We need to remember that we have a common thread here, and that is a healthy and functioning society rather than a focus on conflict the whole time. But politics seems to do the opposite, doesn't it? It, it, it does. And, you know, and I'm, I'm not here to assign blame unfairly to people, uh, but, but a little bit, uh, and maybe I'm not blaming enough here, uh, a fair amount of this can be attributed to the fact that people think that participating in their own governance is pitching up at a ballot box during a, an election, whether municipal or general, once every five years, drawing a cross next to their preferred candidate, and then leaving and and not holding those candidates directly accountable, not engaging with them 
in order to make sure that your voice and your concerns are heard, that your problem is being acknowledged and that things are being done to address it. Uh, you know, instead you go draw your cross and then spend the next half a decade complaining on social media about how everything is sliding <laughs> backwards and, you know, how, how you can't wait to immigrate to Australia. And I'm just going that this is not how problems are solved and you, you can't solve a problem by drawing a cross on a, on a, on a ballot. Of course, voting is important. It's, it's a, one of those foundational pillars of our democracy and you have to do it. But being involved in your governance goes far beyond just that. And this is kind of where the public participation angle via DRSA comes in, in the sense that we've seen yesterday we sat and we compiled a whole bunch of previous success stories that we are going to be disseminating about the impact people have had in in making their voices heard on various issues where there have been calls for comment from government or various government departments. And the, the, what struck me about this, and this is for, since long before I came onto the DRSA, uh, under the DRSA flag, is the uh, um, um, incredible astronomical amounts of comments have been delivered. I think there's over four million in the space of four years. And the impact that this has had and the fact that some bills were wholly withdrawn, some have been shelved, others have been reworked in, with, with whole new content based on, on what the public said they wanted and what they rejected. The voice of a citizen is a powerful tool. So it's almost criminal to not use it. And I would therefore like to encourage people to, to not forget that and to actually make that a central part of their, the existence as a citizen. Mm. Absolutely. And I think that is vitally important. Helian, as usual, it's always, it's been a fantastic chat with you. Um, I hope we revealed the news behind the headlines. I think we certainly did, especially on the city of Twani issue, but many people weren't even actually aware of myself included until I actually read the, read the release. It just goes to show you, isn't it? That <laughs> we just take everything as it's presented to us without going deeper into the actual meat of, of the topic. Maybe, maybe we should do away with news headlines altogether and just say article one, article two, read it now and see where that takes us as, as society. No more clickbait. But anyway, Gideon, it's been wonderful as usual. And unfortunately we've once again run out, run out of time, but definitely to our listeners who might have missed the show, don't worry, it'll be on Spotify or as, as a podcast available on the Chai FM website at www.chaifm.com uh, within the few within a few minutes or later this afternoon. So catch up with that there. And thanks for listening. And really, remember to stay democratic, engaged, active, and responsible. Until next week, ciao for now.